You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everyone. Hey. Well, it's so good to see all of you this morning. If, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here at CA Church. And uh, where's all the kids at? Kids, can you make some noise? Do a little stomping. Or, oh, yeah, there you go. Amazing. Um, so cool. I, I love that this, this happens at, at certain times throughout the year at our various campus, but I love that, that Town Center even especially prioritizes kids as part of this community. And so any, yeah, let's, let's celebrate that. And so to any of you kids who are here, I just want you to know you are such a big part of this church. You are, um, you are not just the future of our church, you are the present of our church. And uh, God has great plans for your life. And so we're so thrilled that you're here. And uh, you can make a bit of noise, not as much as you made, just a second. <laughs> cool. Well, we are continuing uh, the series that, that Brad kicked off last weekend, looking at the, the final seven sayings from Jesus on the cross, these final words that Jesus spoke before he died on the cross for the sins of the world. Uh, this series that we're in is going to take us through, through the entirety of Lent, so this 40-day period of time that, that kind of culminates at Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And, and, and our hope, our, our, our desire as we walk through this series across our church is really just to linger at the foot of the cross, to, to reflect on the cross and on what Jesus has done for us, to look at Jesus, our crucified Savior, and ponder the significance of what he's done for us. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to look at Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, I'll give you a moment to turn there if you have your physical Bibles or to scroll there. Luke 23. Last week we looked at uh, the, the first saying, which is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today we're, we're going to look at some words that come only a few moments after that first uh, declaration of forgiveness. We're going to pick up the story in Luke 23. We'll read verse 32 and 33, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 39. So I'll lead you through that, starting in verse 32. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Let's skip ahead to verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you and I are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, and this is the second saying from the cross. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, crucifixion was, was for the scum of the earth. It was literally the worst and most shameful way that a person could die. And so crucifixion, it was reserved for the worst kinds of people, people who were considered to be worthless, 
Uh, slaves would fit into that category. Those who, who were violent or dangerous, rebels against Rome. It was the most extreme way that one person could say to another person or to demonstrate to another person, you are worthless, like less than human. We don't even have a comparison to crucifixion in our culture. We would never treat an animal as bad as the crucified criminals were treated. I mean, firstly, it was an excruciatingly painful way to die with nails hammered through your hands and feet. But beyond even, even the pain of crucifixion, beyond the pain itself, crucifixion was this clear message to every onlooker, to everyone who passed by a crucified person. It was this message, mess with Rome and we'll nail you to a cross. Step out of line and we are coming for you. See, living on this side of history, on the other side of beautiful cathedrals that are marked by, by crosses on their steeples or earrings and necklaces with the emblems of a cross or even just crucifixion art that presents a clean and sanitized version of Jesus up on the cross. I went to Catholic school growing up and uh, there was this statue of the crucifixion that was up in our chapel and it was this pale white Jesus with a clean towel wrapped around him and he almost looked like he was having this light peaceful nap as he lay on the cross. Like if you didn't know the story and what it all represented, you might think this was just like a tourist working on his tan in the Bahamas leaned up against a wooden cross. All that to say, living in the 21st century, it's so easy for us to miss the, like the shocking and provocative nature of this moment. That the God of the universe would step into human space and time and would be nailed to a human cross, to a Roman cross. The cross represented weakness and and shame, and failure. So let me set this scene a little bit for, for the words we just read in Luke chapter 23. By the time we get to verse 32, which is where we started, Jesus had already been on trial. He'd been beaten and bruised, and he had carried his cross, surrounded by Roman soldiers and, and the crowds that were yelling at him and mocking him and, and screaming in his face. He walked with his cross outside the city gates to a hill called Golgotha, which literally translates to a hill called the Skull. When I was in Israel a couple, um, couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to, to this spot where most scholars believe that this moment would have taken place, this mountain called the Skull. It was actually a pretty emotional experience <laughs> to stand. Has anyone else been to Israel before or been to, yeah, some, I see some hands, to, to stand in this spot where, where they believe that Jesus died and to imagine the scene right there in Israel. You know, it took place roughly a, a mile, a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. And that distance from the city is, is, is important to note because crucifixion was this gruesome, gruesome and, and, and shameful thing that, that would never happen within the city walls. And so as a sort of entertainment, people would leave the city. for They would follow the mob outside the city to watch somebody get crucified. But then they would go back into their kind of clean, sanitized neighborhoods and forget the whole thing, just carry on with their lives. And so Jesus, he, he's, he's marched outside of the city gates. He's, he's hung up on this cross. But scripture tells us that he wasn't hung there alone. Luke 23 says that the crucifixion happened between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. That He was killed in the company of thieves. And, you know, I grew up in church and I've, I've, I've recounted this story Dozens and dozens of times. I, I, I've, I've listened to this story. I've read this story. I've taught this story. I had the, the story taught to me on flannel graphs in Sunday school. But until more recently, I actually didn't ever really pay attention to these other two guys that surrounded Jesus in this moment. Like, I kind of saw them as a footnote almost. Like, yeah, I guess there were two other guys who were crucified that same day. But I've come to realize that unlike some other details that surround this exact scene, 
that, that this, these two guys, these two criminals show up in all four gospel accounts, in all four tellings of the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and they actually get some significant stage time. Like in Luke's gospel alone, there's six verses committed to conversation with these guys. So it would appear that they're actually not extras in the story. They seem to be important characters and essential in understanding these moments on the cross. So here's what I want to ask. Why did these guys make it into this telling of the story? Like, what's the deal with the criminals that surrounded Jesus on Golgotha? Well, first, first they were fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Nearly a thousand years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Isaiah wrote that the promised Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. In other words, that Jesus would would be counted as one of them, as one of those people as a transgressor, as an outcast, as a fool. Fleming Rutledge, who's a pastor and author, she writes, Jesus wasn't numbered among the politically connected. He wasn't numbered among the good, outstanding pillars of the community. Jesus suffered outside the city wall, away from the good neighborhoods, cast out from the company of decent people. And if you think about it, it's actually quite fitting that Jesus would die between two, two outcasts because he spent the, almost the entirety of his ministry around these kinds of people. So many of his followers were, were people that others had, had overlooked or had forgotten, the, the unsophisticated, people that others scoffed at and did whatever they could to avoid. Actually, on a number of occasions, Jesus was, was assumed guilty by association as he hung out with these kinds of people. He was called a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And to be clear, this was not a compliment. See, Jesus spent his days building friendships with these kinds of people that most of us, if we're honest, that most of us probably try to avoid. And, and he loved them with no asterisks beside their name. They weren't some charity project for Jesus. There was no condescension that he had towards them. He spent his days eating and drinking and laughing and teaching with these people who were so different from him. But he rallied them together as family, the poor and the prostitute, the terrorist and the tax collector, people that all other people had forgotten or wouldn't be caught dead around. Jesus called them friends. He welcomed them into his family, into his church. And so with that in mind, I think it's very fitting that these guys would, that that, that he would die among the same kinds of people, these lowly outcasts. Okay, I want to zero in on, I want want to zero in on the conversation that Jesus had with these two criminals on either side of him. You know, if we were there that day, watching this all take place, it probably would have been pretty hard to even make out the conversation amidst everything else that was going, the chaos of the moment. I think about the noise of the crowd that was shouting, the scoffing, the tears, the wailing of, of Jesus' mother and the disciples that surrounded the cross. But I want us to, for a moment, I want us just to lean in a little bit. Just imagine that moment as Jesus is up there on the cross. And I want to listen in to peer in on this exchange that Jesus has with these two men who are hanging on the crosses beside him. They both have pretty different responses to Jesus. Actually, dramatically different responses. But here's what I wasn't expecting as I was, as I was working through this section of scripture over this past few weeks. I found that I could actually identify with both of these criminals. The first criminal threw insults at Jesus. He, he probably said lots of different things over the, hour that, the, the hours that they spent together hanging on the cross. Uh, but, but the statement that makes its way into Luke's telling of the story is verse 39, where he yells at Jesus. He says, aren't you the Messiah? Then save yourself and us. 
And you know, while those words were probably, were, were definitely meant to taunt Jesus and belittle him and ridicule him, I, I think there's also something extremely human about the words that he uses there in the midst of his pain. Like I know in my life, there's these moments of desperation where I've cried out to God with very similar expressions. Like if you're really there, then show up for me. Like if you're really God, then, then I'm expecting you're going to bail me out of this situation. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that before. Maybe call it a, a season of unanswered prayer or a tragedy of some sort. And if you have, I'd imagine maybe you could, might, might have a bit of sympathy towards this first criminal who's experiencing this incredible pain. He's hanging up there with Jesus on the cross. And he says, if you're really the Messiah, if you, if you really are who you say that you are, then save us. Like, don't just hang there. Do something. And I actually don't think that it's bad for us to cry out to God in desperation like that, to bring him our pain and our frustration and to share what's what we really feel. God can take it. We, we, we see all throughout the Psalms, especially, this really real, honest dialogue with God. David the psalmist models this in so many different poems and songs that he's, that he's written that are recorded in Psalms, where he says, where are you, God, in the midst of my sorrow? See, I would go as far as to say that God actually desires raw, honest dialogue with us. He's after relationship. He's after intimacy. He already knows the depths of what's in our hearts, but he, he actually wants to hear it from us. Real relationship is built on honesty. So on the one hand, I can, I can totally sympathize with this criminal who's longing for Jesus to show some expression of power and to change his current situation. But, but it also appears that there's something more going on in the criminal's heart. Like the criminal seems to assume, along with the crowd that surrounded them that day, that if Jesus didn't do something, if he didn't call down angels to rescue him off the cross, if there wasn't some great display of power in that moment, then how could he be the Messiah? How could he save the world? He was obviously just another messianic pretender. And I think it's because the criminal, I think the criminal thought he understood the heart of God, that God would never willingly hang on a cross. Because what kind of God would do that? Would be defeated by death like that. This had to mean that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. The fact that he was up there on the cross meant the end of his mission, right? Well, no. So here's where, where, we, where we see the greatest paradox of the Christian story. Only a dying savior could rescue us from death. I want you to see this. In enduring the cross... Jesus was doing something so much bigger, so much grander than anyone could have imagined in that moment. The miracle was so much bigger, even than what the criminal was crying out for. It wasn't just this momentary relief from pain. Jesus was emptying death of its power once and for all. Jesus was conquering death by death. But that first criminal seemed to miss it. He had this front row seat to experience God's greatest act of love towards his creation, the redemption, uh, this, this redemptive mission in action, but he missed it. That being said, the second criminal, as he looked at Jesus, he seemed to see something entirely different. Same exact moment, but what he saw couldn't have been further from what the other guy saw. The second crim criminal looked at Jesus with eyes of faith. Look at verse 41. He says, we're punished justly. He's talking to the other criminal. We're punished justly for what we're getting with our deed, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Remember me, he said, when you come into your kingdom. There's a lot of significance in those words from from the, the, the criminal on the cross. So let's just sit here for a sec. For starters, in the Old Testament, when God would remember someone, it actually had a very distinct meaning. Like it wasn't just to recall, like to bring to mind something. It wasn't like remembering to text someone back that you haven't texted in a long time or to complete something that's on your to-do list. That wouldn't mean that much. But no, when God remembers all throughout the scriptures, he doesn't just think about us. For God to remember us means that he acts on our behalf, that he acts with power to save. And so to paraphrase what the criminal is actually asking Jesus, he's saying, remember me, Jesus, act on my behalf. Save me, include me in your soon and coming kingdom. It's this recognition that he seems to have of who Jesus is and the power that he has to save. See, somehow that second criminal seemed to see something that day that that so many others missed. As he looked at Jesus hanging on the cross, he saw, he saw the reigning king. He saw the one who even in his dying state had the power to determine his destiny. Remember me, he said, when you come into your kingdom. See, the criminal seemed to realize that Jesus' death was for, was for him. That somehow, in some way, this man on the middle cross was more than just a man. That he had power to save and to forgive and that he himself held the keys to the kingdom of God and could offer him eternal life. Let me ask you this. Do you see yourself as someone who Jesus died for? Because if this scene with the criminals on the cross tells us anything, it's that it is never too late to turn to Jesus. And there is no one who is too far gone. There is no one who is too bad or too late to get in on the scandalous grace of God. And remember, this thief, this wasn't just some guy that, that shoplifted a Snickers bar at Walmart or cheated on his taxes. Remember, crucifixion was reserved for the worst kinds of people. The guy was, this guy was bad to the bone, and yet... Because he recognized the saving power of Jesus, because of his faith to reach out in those final moments and to ask Jesus for help, to ask him him, him to act on his behalf, he was saved. He was promised paradise. More on that in a moment. But I just want to say, no matter who you are here today, and no matter what you've done in your past, or even in your present, like even last night, Even what you've done today, there's no one who is too far gone to receive the scandalous grace of Jesus. His sacrifice is sufficient for you. And, And Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just for the world in a general sense. It wasn't just for the entire cosmos. Uh, It was for you, personally. See, as Jesus hung up to die on that hill called Golgotha, he looked across time and space, and he saw you. He was crucified for you, for me. And he offers us that same forgiveness and promise that he extended to the criminal on the cross that day. My prayer is that there's people in this room today who maybe get, understand this for the first time, who right now experience the unconditional love of the Father that is poured out through Jesus on the cross. See, whether you've been to church your entire life or this is your very first time checking out a Christian church, I have a friend who, who grew up going to CA Church, who knew about Jesus cognitively, like his, his family always came here. He listened through many sermons. He knew about Jesus in his mind, but a few months ago, he had this profound encounter with Jesus during a time of communion. 
It wasn't through a sermon. It was through communion, through remembering the death of Jesus, experiencing the love and the forgiveness of God in this profound way. And it, and it shook him to his core. And he gave his life to Jesus in that moment. It, it is never too late to come to him. And it's as simple as doing what the criminal did on the cross, saying, saying remember me, save me. Jesus, would you act on my behalf, receiving the sacrifice that he made for us? Okay, with a few moments remaining, I want to look at Jesus' promise of paradise. What do you think of when you hear the word paradise, when you hear Jesus promise paradise? Like maybe it's the, uh, maybe it's this extreme amount of rain that we've been getting over this last little bit. <laughs> but when I think about paradise, I just think about anywhere sunny. <laughs> like maybe it's like a, a vacation, a two-week vacation to Mexico or, uh, I don't know, a time in Hawaii or maybe, maybe the kids in the room. What's like, what's your dream vacation or what's the best vacation you've been on? Anybody? Has anyone been to, oh, I see some whispering happening over there. Anyone been to Disneyland before? Yeah, let's go. What about the kids? Anybody? What's the best vacation you've ever been on? Coquitlam River. Oh, yeah. Just laying on a floating down the river. Oh, that's beautiful. That's paradise right there. Yeah. You went on a cruise? How was it? Oh, amazing. Very cool. What did you say? Two weeks in Mexico. Oh, my, my brother. That's amazing. I dream of those days. Who else? Yeah. Wow. So cool. For sure. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, when, when, I, when I hear paradise, it stirs this desire in me to, to kind of escape the stresses and the busyness of my everyday life and just to get away for a few moments, to sit at a pool. This is what I imagine, sitting at a pool, obviously covered by an umbrella because I burn very easily, um, but sipping on a cold drink of some sort, kids splashing in the pool beside me, this, this escape for a few weeks from the realities and the stresses of everyday life. And maybe your idea of, of paradise is, is way different to that. Maybe it's, maybe it's camping. Maybe for some in this room it is Disneyland or, or whatever the case might be. But the paradise that Jesus promises in this moment, that Jesus plans for us, is so far beyond any of that than just a momentary relief or 10 days in this dream location or whatever. See, the future that Jesus promises is not just freedom from pain and suffering. It is that. But it's also the participating in beauty and, and enjoying perfect peace in the abundant life that God has for us. Here's the bottom line. For the Christian, death is not the end of the story. That's what Jesus promises right here in our text, that death is this doorway into resurrection life. And I get that out, looking in from the outside, it might look like death is one of the only journeys in our lives that we have to walk through alone. But Jesus promises right here that, that he's with us through it. And he, he talks elsewhere. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That like the criminal on the cross, as we breathe our last breath on earth, we immediately enter the presence of God. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. This, this promise of paradise, in a lot of ways, it parallels the Garden of Eden. 
the original paradise in Genesis chapter 2, where, where God created a garden that was both beautiful and functional. It was, it was perfect. It was aesthetically like breathtaking, but it was also able to nourish humanity. It was this place of complete harmony between God and his creation. And in that garden, the, the first humans had nothing to hide from each other. There was, there was no shame or jealousy or anxiety. There was joy and delight. And at the center of that paradise was God himself calling out to his image bearers, walking and talking with them in the garden. It was this picture of, of perfect communion. This is how it all began. And in the end, Revelation gives us this beautiful picture of where it's all going as God restores and renews all things. See, here's what's clear. The Bible teaches that as we breathe our, our last breath on earth, that we awaken the presence of God. Okay, so, so let me circle back for a moment, and, and I want to end with this question. What do we have to do in order to enter this paradise that Jesus has on offer? What do we have to do? It's actually a bit of a trick question, because it's actually not about what we have to do. It's, it's about what Jesus has done for us. Alistair Begg, who's a, a great Scottish preacher, he talks about what that moment must have been like for the criminal as he entered into paradise that day. And he's kind of being silly with this, but, uh, but, he, but he, he talks about like what, what that interaction with Michael the archangel would have been like as, as the criminal showed up. And, and maybe, maybe Michael's like, what are you doing here? And maybe the thief said, like, I actually don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? And then maybe the angel started to quiz this, this thief from the cross, like saying, are you clear on the, the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> no, I've, I've never even heard of it. <laughs> Have you been baptized? No. Did you go to Next Step and join a community group and give 10% of your income to the church? No, none of that stuff. <laughs> then on what basis are you here? And maybe he, he shook his head for a moment and, and just said, Pfft. the man on the middle cross said I could come. You know, that is the, the only answer. That is the only right answer. The man on the middle cross said I could come. See, as soon as we think that we're made right with God because of what we've done, because I believed or, or, or because I cleaned up my act enough or because I lived a good life and I helped people or because I, if we speak about our salvation in the first person, we've completely missed the essence of the gospel. The only proper response for the criminal on the tree, the only response for us is in third person because he, because Jesus this is, this is so important. We have to keep the cross at the center of our Christian experience. That's why we're lingering here for the next few weeks. Because as soon as we forget the cross, as soon as we forget that he's the one that does the saving, we start to add things to it. We say grace plus. Grace plus works equals salvation. And when that happens, we either fall into the depths of despair or we end up in, in this place of arrogance. We either fall into despair thinking we could never face God because of our sin and our shortcomings, that we could never measure up, that our sin defines us, that God is mad at us. Or if things are looking good, if, if, if things are all up and to the right for us, we can become arrogant and start to subtly think that, that we can do it on our own, that those people need the cross, the thieves and the prostitutes. And yeah, yeah, those people need the cross. But I'm actually doing pretty good. But it's all Grace. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. 
remembering that we're saved by grace, that, 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 that is what Jesus has done for us. That's what we see in his interaction with the criminal, undeserved, unmerited, scandalous grace. That there's nothing we can do to earn our way to God. We bring nothing to the table, that it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus that we're made clean. I want to invite Marika to come back up and we're going to move into a time of response. She's going to teach us a beautiful new song. But as she prepares, I just want to read a few lines from one of my favorite hymns. It's called Rock of Ages. And if you've been around our church, you've probably sang that with us before, a beautiful song. But I want to read a couple of the verses because I think the hymn writer does such a beautiful job summing up what we've been talking about. It's in Old English because it's an old song. But let me read it for you. It says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. He goes on, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So let's take a moment and pray together, and we'll sing and respond. Well, Jesus, we are so thankful for the cross. And as we've taken the last few moments to look at you, our crucified Savior, to to lean into this moment, this conversation, to experience your grace again, I pray that you would give us the ability to receive what you've done for us. To actually lay down our, our pride or our arrogance or our shame and our guilt to receive your free gift of grace that you have on offer. Pray for those who are in this room who might not know you or might not have actually experienced your love and your grace for themselves. Pray even in this moment that you would give them the ability to to reach out, to, to, to take a step of faith and to say, would you remember me, Jesus? Like the criminal on the cross to say, remember me. Act on my behalf. Do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I receive your sacrifice for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you would come for us, that you would die a death in our place so that we could be made whole, so that we could have life and life abundant and this beautiful promise of paradise. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.